Tank. Yes. How important is Cash, not only to me personally, but to our podcast? Oh, he's integral. Integral. He's the CEO of Psychopedia. I love him and I would do anything for him, but vet bills get very expensive. So fast. Especially when it's an emergency vet bill. So here's the good news. Our partner, Spot Pet Insurance, is here to share how they are a secret weapon against the unexpected. Oh, I've heard about insurance before. I've never had it. With Spot Plans, you can get up to 90% cash back on eligible vet bills. That could be a whole lot of cash back for unexpected vet bills, which can pile up fast. Question, is that cash with a K or? (laughs) Funny. Spot Pet Insurance plans don't just offer coverage for unexpected accidents and illnesses. You can add their preventative care benefit to your plan, helping to ensure that routine wellness, vaccines, and more can be covered. Go to spotpet.com today and get a quote instantly. Visit www.spotpet.com. Paid ad from Spot Pet Insurance. Waiting periods, annual deductible, coinsurance, benefit limits, and exclusions may apply. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com slash sample dash policy. Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Learning a second and third language has opened my mind in ways I did not expect. Language can be such a barrier we feel divided or separated from people who are speaking a language we don't understand. I can tell you from lots of personal experience, there's nothing better than coming across someone struggling to speak English only to have me meet them where they stand. Their eyes light up and they relax. That's why I love Rosetta Stone. Learning on your own with books or even in class is tough because you learn in a way that does not make sense to the human brain. Rosetta Stone is as close to immersion as you can get without abandoning your family and responsibilities to go live in Spain for six months. Rosetta Stone has been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. You learn fast. It's intuitive. There's no English translation, so it's sink or swim. And it has the true accent feature, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Psychopedia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com psychopedia. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash psychopedia today. Welcome back to another episode of the Psychopedia Podcast. I'm your co-host, Tank Sinatra, here with my co-host. In true crime, Investigator Slater. <laughs> so, how's life? Just oh, kidding. I'm great. just kidding. Yeah. Do you know what I did last night? What? That was so fun by my lame-ass standards. Like, the definition of fun has changed so much for me. Uh-huh. Dave and I watched the trailers to, like, a ton of old funny movies. Oh, That's yeah. all we did. We didn't watch a full movie. We watched the trailer to Tommy Boy, uh-huh. Dumb and Dumber, yeah. Ace Ventura, nice. Anchorman, which you know I haven't seen, which he's seen, which the trailer was hilarious. The movie's classic, yeah. Um, Big Daddy, mm-hmm. and oh, Wayne's World. <sighs> I know. We killed it. That's like a half hour of viewing exactly. right there. Exactly. Yeah. I fell asleep after. Really? I was satisfied. Yeah, those are some good movies. Fantastic. I've seen all of them, obviously. Uh-huh. All-time favorite is Ace Ventura. Tommy Boy for me. Yeah, Ace Ventura. I mean, I had a real problem with that. Oh, righty then. Yeah, I, my friends were like, dude, you got to stop. Were you good at impersonating oh. him? Oh. oh, I was very good. <laughs> I bet. 
So, you know, I have problems with questions, right? Yes. Do you know how hard it was for me not to ask you when you said we were doing a cameo today? Uh-huh. Like, what kind of cameo? Who's it for? What should I wear? How long is it going to be? I was like, just don't ask him anything. He just can't deal with questions. Well, those questions I'm trying to get better with. Uh-huh. But sometimes, like, I guess it's like when you put too big of an input into a computer that can't handle the like the calculation <laughs> you're giving it. And somebody at Starbucks the other day goes, how's life? I was like, are you short circuited? My whole life. Where do I begin? What do you want to know? Like, how's life? I mean, if there's a lazier question out there, I can't think of one. It's not laziness. It's not a lazy question. I know, question. it's just fun to ask someone how's life and watch them fucking... Squirm. Sh- yeah, glitch out. My whole life? Very kind of you to ask about my whole life. What did you say? I said life's good. That's it, man. That's all he's looking for. Yeah. And then you're supposed to say, how are you? To which he'll say, it was good, man. I ha-, you know. Oh, you know what I did say? I go, how's your entire life? <laughs> <laughs> he's like, forget I asked, dick. Yeah, so... If you obviously love this podcast and you want to hear a little bit more of what we're doing, go over to patreon.com slash psychopedia pod. And there's a new, there's a new thing over there that people are taking advantage of the discount for the year long. Oh yeah. Yeah. They're flying in. People are just, I mean, taking it, I guess it makes it like $8 a month instead of $10 a month. Listen, every dollar counts. What I feel from that is that they are fully committing to us and it makes me want to just go harder. Everything for them. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like when you put a ring on someone's finger. Yeah. I'm just going to level up now. Uh, they put a ring on, on my finger, mm-hmm. and I feel great about it. $108 ring. Yeah, and there's no way that I can get out of it. Not not that I want to. Right. I get it. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. I think it's time to just kick it up a notch. Go for it. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you're the one with the full-time job. <laughs> True. <laughs> Fucking jeez. <laughs> you got to help all these people. I get it, but our people are waiting for you. I love our people. Okay. So she'll be over there soon. Right now, she's uh, busy saving the world. So, without further shabizness, I'd like to hear what case we're getting into today. And just for the audience, this was a hot turnaround. Oh, yeah. This was like a hardcore 72-hour or so research-a-thon that Investigator Slater has turned around. So, I'm very interested to see when and where, not if, when and where the quality suffers. Oh, Ah, wow. (laughs) The thing of it is, is the quality won't suffer. My sanity has the past three days. My children have, perhaps. I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're, you're, the quality won't suffer. Everyone else and everything will suffer before exactly. that, which is crazy to me. I would just wing it if I was you, but no, I, that's why I'm not no, you. This is what I love. I you love do, to do it. You do love it. I know. And it comes across and the people know, and obviously this act of love that you're doing for the podcast is really an act of love for the listeners. True that. True that. So without further acts of love, let's... <laughs> Let's hear what this case is all about. All right. I'm excited. In an era before the instantaneous gratification of digital photography, photo development shops like Kodak held a special place in the hearts of both avid photographers and everyday people who relied on this technology to breathe life into their precious moments. Kodak was huge. Huge. I have a story about Kodak after you're done. Yeah. And you know what? It occurred to me writing this, maybe not all of our listeners know what that is. So... I'm taking a second here to tell you how vintage photography used to work in (laughs) mine and Tank's time. Wow. You used to have- Hey, hold on. Don't call my and your time vintage. Um, 
literally, if I told my paralegals who are 20 years younger than me yeah. that we used to have to drop off our film, they would think I lived in 1920. Yeah, but when you're saying vintage, it beckons the uh, I- image of the guy with the hood over him and the fucking power, the, oh, the blasting not, flash. That's our vintage. No, because that was in like the 1920s and we were born in 1980, 1982 or so. So you're talking 60 years ago. This is a sore topic for you. Got I'm just it. trying to put it in its right Okay, size. it's not vintage, y'all. It's a little time ago. Maybe it is vintage. Oh, my. You used to have to drop off rolls of film or disposable cameras to actual brick-and-mortar photo development shops for some drugstore wizard to print it out for you. Yeah. It would take, like, two days unless you paid for one-hour development, which was never, ever one hour. Yeah. Right? You were always standing around waiting. And you have no idea what's on the camera. You don't know if they're good pictures, bad (laughs) pictures, your thumb. Like, you don't know what you're getting, but you pay for it up front, and you wait, and then you see what you got. It was a lawless time. Yes. These little enclaves of photographic wonder were not merely stores in a strip mall, but portals through which important moments of life suddenly appeared before one's eyes. As film rolls were entrusted to the skilled hands of Kodak technicians, the process of photograph development was a captivating ritual, a delicate dance of chemistry and time as those latent images were coaxed to life by the skilled hands of a either darkroom technician, if we're going vintage, or some guy in a Photoshop. Well, I think they do it in dark rooms in Photoshops also, don't they? I'm picturing the machines at CVS. Yeah, but it's dark in the machine. Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> it really is, when you think about it, developing photos is almost more magical than a digital camera. I think about that more than I should. Yeah. One fateful afternoon on August 10th, 1982, in the heart of Tsim Sha Tsui, Hong Kong, at about 3 p.m., A Kodak technician was working his magic to immortalize a customer's cherished life moments by developing his roll of film. However, amidst the whirring machinery and chemical baths within those machines, something extraordinary and disconcerting began to unfold before the technician's eyes. Oh, no. An enigmatic figure started to materialize on the glossy photographic paper, her bare form growing ever more distinct with each passing second. That is so scary. While the occasional accidental glimpse of risque snapshots was not entirely unheard of in this profession, what set this particular incident apart was the haunting progression of disturbing images that followed the initial photograph of a nude woman. People talk about how your digital like photographs are stored in the cloud or whatever. And it's like, yeah, they're out there. But there's nothing like having Joey from the fucking Photoshop see your bare ass. Yeah. And you have to go get the photos from him. Yes. You know what I mean? Accurate. <laughs> Not that I ever no. knew that feeling. Not you. I'm just imagining. I'm very empathetic. As the subsequent frames emerged from the developer, in this case, it unfolded not just a narrative of a naked woman lying on a plastic sheet over a carpeted floor, but also a disturbing collection of intimate and grotesque close-ups of her sexual parts, mm. as well as what appeared to be a fresh burn mark on the woman's thigh. Additional images began to reveal cuts on her flesh and what appeared to be a full-blown human dissection. And it was the last image that pushed the photo technician over the edge of despair and would remain etched in his uncomprehending mind forever. Because before him, in now painful color and detail, was the unmistakable sight of a mutilated, severed breast lying next to a bloody chainsaw. I mean, how fucking dumb are you? 
This is the case of Hong Kong's first known serial killer. Wow. A man named Lam Korwan, better known as the Rainy Night Butcher and the Jars Murderer. I was going to ask, was it all images of the same woman or was it all different women? This particular set of film was one woman. I mean, you got to be fucking crazy to bring that film role into a Insane. We will get into, though, why he felt it was okay for him to do this and why he thought he'd get away with it. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you got to be crazy to dissect somebody, too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's get into it. On May 22nd, 1955, Lam Korwan entered the world in Hong Kong, born to his father, Lam Y. Nyop, and his mother, Zhang Zhanping. I thought, I thought you mispronounced it. <laughs> so you said, nope. Lam Y. Nope. No. Gonna start over. No. I actually Googled the pronunciations and practiced. Yeah. So the last name is spelled N-G-O-K, which according to my research, you pronounce as nope. N-G-O-K? Yes. Yeah. N-G-U-Y-E-N is like nyoyen. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's some nyoyens out there that I know. Okay, cool. Yeah. I really practiced because I wanted to pay my respect to the culture and not botch this. Sure. As Lam Corwan grew up, the intricacies of his family dynamic revealed a complexity that set the stage for his life's journey. Lam's father, in addition to his legal marriage to Lam's mother, maintained two unofficial marriages, often referred to as concubines. So the term concubine historically denotes a woman in a culturally recognized yet subordinate marital arrangement with a man. So in this unique case, all three wives and all of their combined children coexisted under one roof as one large family. Question. Yes, sir. Is a concubine an individual? I thought it was a collection of individuals. Well, the way that it's defined here, a a concubine is a woman in a culturally recognized sort of unofficial marriage. Because I've only heard people refer to like my concubine as if it was a whole cohesive unit, not an individual, but I don't know. Between the years 1957 and 1962, after Lam's father obtained a decent job working for an oil company in Brunei, the family moved to live within the company's dorm. As the eldest son, born to his father's lawful wife, Lam Korwan occupied a distinct position within the multifaceted family structure. His status not only bestowed upon him the responsibility of bearing the family name, but also subjected him to added pressure under the watchful and scrutinizing gaze of his very strict father. In December of 1962, Lam Korwan, along with his entire family, moved back to Hong Kong, where life continued in their increasingly strict household, governed by Lam's father, who assumed the role of a very, very stern ruler. He displayed an unwavering commitment to maintaining order and discipline in the home with military sharpness. Under his father's extremely firm leadership, Lamb's daily routines and expectations took on a very structured and demanding nature. Chores and homework were to be executed with exceptional care and success, and any failure to meet these stringent standards would result in severe physical punishment. Terrible. Well, I was thinking with that many wives and kids, you have to be like a little bit of a strict parent because otherwise it would just be a zoo, but no. No, strict and abusive are two different things. Very different. Thankfully for Lamb, during his early years, he proved to be a bright student who ranked within the top 10% of his class. But then everything changed for Lamb in 1968 when his father got a new job at CLP Power Hong Kong Limited and the entire family was forced to relocate once again, 
this time to Sham Shui Po. That's a big fucking family to move to. Huge. And this is now the third move. Wow. With this additional move came a new motorcycle shop business that Lam's father owned and operated on Hong Ning Road, where Lam was required to work every single day and night following a full day at school. Unsurprisingly, this rigorous arrangement sparked a relentless cycle in which Lam's academic performance gradually declined, subsequently provoking his father's severe physical violence and relentless, ongoing, and painfully harsh criticism. Yeah, that dad. I mean, what do you expect, dude? You're making him work full-time? Exactly, exactly. The result was, unsurprisingly, a profoundly unhappy, unhealthy, and unstable home environment. Sure. Nonetheless, Lam Korwan still managed to graduate from high school, and then he worked full-time at the family motorcycle shop while simultaneously undertaking an apprenticeship with a relative's air conditioning company. However, in spite of dedicating himself fully to the motorcycle shop, he remained a giant disappointment to his father, who continued to demonstrate increasing displays of physical abuse and vitriolic outbursts. Was it everybody he was doing that to, or just him? Him. Oh, my God. He had the family name to carry on, and he just had much, much higher expectations given his placement in the family tree, which is an unfair, in his defense, this is the only time you're going to hear me defend him, yeah. that's a very unfair standard to hold him to. Of course. And the fact that it's a standard at all and it's not being enforced on anybody else just makes it that much worse. Right. Now, there's definitely some consideration that we'll probably circle back to, which is, was the pressure put on him because he sort of had this side to him that obviously at some point since he's being featured on Psychopedia came out and was disgusting. Maybe his father was harder on him than anyone else because he detected something other going or on. Maybe he turned out that way because his father was harder exactly. on him. Exactly. Than Hard to know. Yeah. Or both. Or both. But it was this precise moment in time in which Lamb's inclinations and proclivities veered sharply down a dark and ominous path. It all started during his late teens with a disturbing fixation and addiction to pornography, an unsettling obsession he openly talked about with his family while discussing his explicit sexual interests. That is fucking weird. It's gross. Yeah. At the age of 19, he began ordering pornographic magazines through international mail orders from England before meticulously focusing on and cutting out all the images of breasts and genitalia. His unrelenting obsession with naked women drove him to visit brothels on a consistent basis by this young age, even though he would occasionally struggle with impotence in the presence of a real woman in the flesh. Yeah, you're looking at too much porn, dude. Yeah, it took a lot, I would say, given the nature of this case, which obviously you don't know about yet, but you will, to get him going. Yeah. Lamb's fixation on women and escalating perversions reached such an alarming level that it resulted in a truly disturbing incident, whereby his mother horrifyingly caught him masturbating to the sight of his own sister taking a shower. Following this harrowing incident, Lamb's mother not only evicted Lamb from the family household, but also all the other men in the family as well, which included Lamb's father, brother, and half-brother. Although it remains somewhat unclear why she chose to evict all the men from the house instead of just Lamb, two prevailing theories offer some insight. One, she might have felt the need to safeguard the girls in the house from any potential abusers among the men. And or two, she may have intended for the men to closely monitor Lamb's escalating sexual deviance. 
But the bottom line is, Lamb and all the men were evicted. Whatever the precise reason might have been, they all relocated to a first-floor, 500-square-foot walk-up apartment in Tokwan Wan, situated within the Kowloon City District of Hong Kong. Wait, you just said first-floor walk-up? So, not amazed, because you always catch on to these things. Did you know that outside America, maybe not everywhere, but in many places outside America, a first-floor walk-up is what we would consider a second-floor? I remember learning that in French. Yeah. Okay. So, there you go. Bringing it back. Hey, guess what? What? I found a solution to a problem that I don't even think people realize is a problem. And you actually know what it is because we got them. What? The Aura Frames. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That thing has changed the vibe in my house. I have put almost every picture that I own on there because in my phone, I never look at them. There's too many to look at. So I put it on there. It was so easy to use, to set up. It was like comically simple. And a lot of people are concerned with privacy, as they should be. But with this, you get complete control over who has access to your photos. And it's more secure to let these things run on the frame than it is to send them via email. My favorite thing about this frame is that I get to update the pictures that go into it. So when I print pictures and hang them up in my house, it drives me crazy that the next few months, my kids look entirely different. So with this frame, I get to see my kids as they change in front of my very eyes. Yeah, it's a great thing to have in the house. It displays the photos beautifully, and it makes a great gift. As a matter of fact, right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com and use code Psychopedia at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. So within this modest living space, Lamb found himself sharing a cramped five by 10 foot room with his younger brother. Mm. And it was in this confined room within this compact apartment that the Royal Hong Kong police would eventually find themselves standing in a state of absolute shock and horror. So now we're going to skip ahead, okay, in the case to what was found in the small bedroom about six years after Lamb and his family first moved in. Okay? Oh, so they stayed there for six years? Yeah. That's a long time for them. Yeah, it is. Okay, so we're going to bump ahead, and then we'll walk it back to explore how and why these findings came to be in that room. Okay. All right? So we're not sticking to a linear timetable, so I need you to put your thinking cap on. The more we jump around, the better for me. Yeah? Is that how it works? Oh, yeah. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> So the date is now August 10th, 1982, which is the date I mentioned during the intro and the date on which a photo technician at a Kodak shop made the gruesome discovery of a severed breast and a chainsaw. Yeah, I remember that. That technician notified his manager, a man named Xiang Tsai, who not only found himself staring in disbelief at a dissected female corpse with a missing breast, but also took note of a significant burn mark on the woman's bare thigh. The man who dropped off the photos was, of course, Lam Korwan. And Lam had apparently dropped off photos of a similar disturbing nature on several occasions to a different Kodak shop located about one mile down the road 
who had been printing his brutal photographs for weeks. Lamb only wound up at this second Kodak shop after requesting to have one of his photos enlarged, a capability that the first shop did not have. Oh my God. Thankfully, the manager at the second Kodak shop, Shang Tsai, immediately notified the Royal Hong Kong Police, which has since changed its name to Hong Kong Police Department, which happened in 1997, after China resumed sovereignty over Hong Kong. A little history. Well, think about you're the Kodak store clerk, Mm -hmm. right? And you're printing these photos, which are absolutely horrific. Mm -hmm. I can see, possibly, why you wouldn't mention it. To anyone? Yeah. Because, like, you're fucking, like, this guy's obviously psychotic. He kills people. Mm -hmm. If you give me 25 seconds, I'm going to ask you to tell me how he got away with it. Okay, because the pop quiz is coming up? Yeah. Cool. Mm -hmm. So the manager at this Kodak shop calls the police, and he connects with a man named Sergeant Loda Jun, who was head of the homicide squad in Kowloon. Sergeant Jun began his investigation by visiting the first Kodak shop to inquire as to how many similarly themed photographs they'd been developing for him and over what length of time he'd been dropping off these types of photographs. Yeah. Sergeant Loda Jun wanted to know how it was possible, like you, Tank, for them to have continuously printed out such brutal and sickening photos. Well, according to the first Kodak shop, they did not perceive any issue with Lam Korwan's actions or his photos as he provided which of the following explanations regarding the nature of the photos. Oh, all right, all right, all right. Okay, here we go. Thank you. see what's happening. A, they were props used in the production of horror films. B, that he worked as a photographer in a morgue. C, that he was an artist who staged fake murders. Those are all very plausible choices. But which one would trick me? Yeah, which one? He's staging murders for Hollywood or whatever, movies. He's a photographer in a morgue or what's the other one? He was an artist who staged fake murders. Artist, okay. Fuck, I... He was uh, an artist who staged fake murders. No. Yeah, okay, cool, great, figured that. Um, B, he was a photographer at a morgue. Yes, yes. Fucking sure, I guess. That would not trick me, by the way. I mean, Lam Corwin indicated to the first Kodak shop that he was an autopsy photographer at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Yaomaytei. If you told him that you were a a police photographer, maybe. Right, doing crime scenes. Yeah. But what type of, first of all, none of this adds up. No. But a woman laying on a carpeted floor with sexual parts photographed that you're asking to be enlarged. Yeah. A burn mark, mutilation. Man. You had me at fucking sex organs being enlarged. Yes, yes. It's a major red flag. So this is when Sergeant Loda Jun officially launched an investigation into Lam Korwan, immediately locating and apprehending him. When Detective Loda Jun questioned Lam about the photographs, Lam claimed that they belonged to a friend of his. He asserted that he had merely dropped off the negatives and retrieved the developed photos without any knowledge of their content. However, this explanation provided fruitless, obviously, upon investigation because there was no evidence to support the existence of such a friend or their involvement in producing murder photography. Yeah. Next, a different member of the investigative team, a man named Senior Inspector Martin Richmond, led a search of Lamb's apartment, which was flat B in the Ong Hing building. 
And what he and his team discovered inside that apartment is truly what nightmares are made of. Oh my God. And when he was living with somebody at the time? All the men in his family. He had a roommate, right? He, and his actual bedroom he shared with his brother. Brother had no idea what was going on? You'll find out. All right, here we go. But first, please allow me to issue a trigger warning because what I'm about to burn into your ear holes is going to hurt. So please listen with caution. Lamb's bedroom, which was located directly opposite the entrance door to the apartment, was packed with boxes, suitcases, and loads of professional photography equipment, including an actual video camera, which was quite a big deal in 1982. Yeah, a video camera. Yes. Camcorder. Yeah. Very true. My dad had one. It was the size of a microwave. Yeah. <laughs> Enormous. There were copious amounts of pornography everywhere, as well as medical textbooks relating to human anatomy. But it's what was discovered beneath Lamb's bed that is truly, truly horrific and heartbreaking. Okay. Because in a military ammunition box, which had actually appeared in some of the photographs developed at the Kodak shop, were reams and reams of photo negatives and printed images of dead, dissected, and dismembered women. Okay, so he wasn't packing body parts in his room. Let me continue. Oh, fuck. Okay. Many of the images portrayed the victims being taken apart piece by agonizing piece. There were also dozens of videotapes, a red purse, and a pair of white high heel shoes. And lying at the bottom of the box was a full set of surgical equipment. Under Lamb's bed, law enforcement also found a series of sealed plastic Tupperware food containers that oh were all reinforced shut with masking tape. Upon opening these containers, forensic technicians were instantly slammed with a very potent stench emanating from the liquid contained within. Oh, God, skip it. Skip, which appeared skip, skip to be it. Skip this part. some sort of rice wine being used as a preservative. This is absolutely horrific. And immersed in the rice wine liquid were very specific butchered human body parts, including severed breasts, as well as multiple pubic parts and female genitalia. Mm. You okay? You look good. Yeah, interesting. This is fascinating stuff. You look actually unwell. I'm riveted. Well, I'm thinking about the scene in there, and mm. it's absolutely grossing me out. The room was suddenly filled with a deafening silence as law enforcement and technicians alike stood in a state of overwhelming shock and horror. Because I was thinking he's in there with like body parts and his brother or whoever it was like, dude, how do you not smell what's happening or know what's going on? But I could see how he could bury the interest in his photography equipment mm -hmm. um, and the stuff that he's shot and developed long enough to cause a problem. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. And it kept getting worse and worse with every discovery made. Sure. Yeah, of course. Pop quiz. Another one? Yeah. Oh. You know, they tend to come in hot once I start. True. What additional discovery was found to have been lining the room's perimeter? Okay. A, fingernails. Mm. B, dried vomit. C, pubic hair. Fingernails? No. I don't know. Just tell me and we move on. Female pubic hair as well as flecks of blood and flesh. So bad. On the walls. So bad. I mean, this really happened. Yeah, that's fucked. 
like take a second. I mean, not that you need to, because you already look sick. Squeamish. But this was real. This isn't like a movie. This isn't me telling you something around a campfire to give you the heebie-jeebies. Oh, this, it's giving me the heebie-jeebies. It's so fucking tragic. These were human beings. And it took four full days to conduct a thorough forensic sweep of Lamb's apartment, which was tiny. Yeah. At this point, law enforcement had no idea who the butchered body parts belonged to and or how many victims were tragically involved. They also had no idea how many perpetrators were involved because, to your point, Lamb shared that tiny bedroom with his younger brother and also lived with his father and an additional half-brother. Yeah. So on April 18th, 1982, all the residents of that apartment, including Lamb's father, were placed under arrest because according to Senior Inspector Martin Richmond, quote, it would have been astonishing to think that a single person could have been capable of achieving what Lam Corwan achieved on his own. Yeah, like how could you not? No, I could see the cops thinking that, but I could also see them having no idea. His father was completely disinterested in him. And Correct. Yeah. Well, and there's more to it. Incredibly, Lam's family truly had no idea what he had been up to. During police interrogations, it became evident that the other men in that apartment were deeply disturbed by the evidence presented to them and all maintained that they hardly even saw Lamb at all. Everyone in that apartment worked during the day and came home to sleep at night, except for Lamb, who was home during the day and worked at night. Yeah. Pop quiz. Another one? Yeah. Oh my God. What two jobs did Lamb Corwan work? A- a cashier at a women's lingerie store and a photographer for aspiring models. Okay. B, a UPS delivery driver and a bar back at a strip club. C, a taxi driver and working as a camera guy on a porn set. A. No. Cool. C. Yes. Mm, okay. So In, he's working on a porn set? Yeah. I loved porn. It was not just love. It was obsession. It was fixation. Yeah. It was something so much deeper. Yeah. In 1978, Lam Corwan obtained his taxi driving license and began working the night shift. He also purchased a shit ton of photography equipment and began working a side hustle as a camera guy on porn sets. It's kind of like people that are attracted, obviously, to what they love. They find themselves surrounding themselves with it. Yeah. Anyway, it didn't take long for all of Lam Corwan's relatives to have been officially cleared as potential suspects, as once all of the victims were eventually identified, they each had an alibi that checked out. Which brings us to the next bit of the story, where we discuss the very important question that must be screaming in your head by now. Wait, an alibi? But this went on for how long? Like, how, how could they possibly have an alibi that spans They discovered weeks. who each of the victims were. Oh, okay. And in doing so, they were able to unravel the details of each respective murder. Okay. And walking back into it, they could clear these other relatives. Where were we on the night of December 11th? Exactly. All right, where were we on the night of July 2nd? Exactly. All right, where were we on the night of April 4th? Exactly. Wow. <laughs> that's fucking, I mean, that's... Good police work. Very good police work, but very scary to be sitting in that seat and be like, I don't know. I don't... You know what? I always, I don't know what I did two days ago. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, I it's don't. It's wild. I think about this all the time when I'm reading police transcripts or even just something more like typical, like watching a police show and they're like, where were you on the night of, fuck, I, I don't know. How's life? 
Yeah, well, I'd rather answer that question because <laughs> I, no I can make it up. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know where I was. I mean, I'm probably home because... What else do I do? I don't do a lot. You know what I would say? What? I was on my laptop and then they'd go to my laptop and they would find Ooh, really not a great search history. Under the jail. <laughs> exactly. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Mint Mobile has premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month, which is comically low because you're getting high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Oh, and you can use your own phone and bring your number over. Easy peasy, super inexpeasy. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash psychopedia. That's mintmobile.com slash psychopedia. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash psychopedia. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slow after 40 gigabytes a month on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. It's no secret that cost of goods are out of control. Business owners, large and small, know this. I'm a small business owner who happens to be physically large. Cost of goods drives up cost of services, which drives up cost of goods. It's unending. But there is a solution. NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is a solution, not a problem. A lot of technology is just a bigger, faster problem. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you can reduce IT costs, cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And listen, 37,000 companies are using it. That doesn't happen by mistake. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash psychopedia. That's netsuite.com slash psychopedia. netsuite.com slash psychopedia. So we want to ask these questions by this point. You want them answered, right? I do. Who exactly were those poor women in the photographs and inside the containers? And how did Lam Korwan do what he did? Yeah, great question. What was his modus operandi? How did he select his victims? And what exactly had he done to them? Seeking to answer these very same questions, Sergeant Lodajun worked diligently to piece together all the available evidence. He only had a mere 48-hour window in which he could keep Lam Korwan detained before being obligated to release him back into the wild. I mean, really? Listen to this. Great reaction. Because astonishingly, despite the profoundly disturbing evidence discovered at Lam's residence, including breasts and vaginas in containers, including graphic video footage of him actually committing the murders. Okay. Walking around multiple naked dead bodies, the police still harbored doubts about having sufficient grounds to keep him in custody. On what grounds? I don't know what else they could need. They have more than a smoking gun. Were they just worried about it or that that was an actual threat? 
my interpretation is that they were worried about it. I think that they had, first of all, this was Hong Kong's first serial killer, right? So I think just in general, very, very high stakes here, right? Huge, yeah. I think everybody wanted to play it close to the chest in terms of police procedure, making sure everything was done to the nth degree in terms of like... You don't want it thrown out on a technicality. Yes, thank you. Okay. Right. It did motivate them, this fear, as silly as it seems to us, that they'd have to release him. It motivated them to work around the clock to process all of the evidence and to go hard at him during questioning because they really, really felt that they needed a confession in order to secure him. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. But it's okay. Unfortunately, for most of Lamb's interview, he offered the police nothing. He remained unmoved and unyielding. He was probably like, dude, you have videos. What do you need from me? No, he's like, I'm not confessing to shit. Yeah, I'm on video doing it. And still you think you don't have enough. (laughs) (laughs) The rest is on you, brother. (laughs) Figure it out. But then investigators threatened to take which of the following actions if he didn't speak. Mm. PQ. Pop quiz. A, destroy his meticulous and very precious video collection. B, release the photographs and videos to the public. C, place him in a holding cell with inmates who did not take kindly to men who harmed women. C. No. A. No. No, it's not B. It is, indeed. But they can't can't do that. But they said they could. Yeah. And the threat enough broke him. Wow. He sang like a bird and confessed to everything. Lam Corwin provided an in-depth declaration of what he'd done, how he'd done it, and to whom he'd done it to. He also explained the circumstances in his life that he believed led him to commit such heinous acts of violence. Mm -hmm. According to Lamb, it could all be traced back to a singular incident in 1973 when his father first kicked him out of the family home following a particularly intense fight that they'd had. At the time, 18-year-old Lamb felt demasculinized, out of control of his own life, and on the verge of a breakdown. Suddenly, without having any recollection of how he wound up there, Lamb found himself outside of a public restroom on Hak Yuan Street in Hong Kong, armed with a knife and forcing women into the bathroom where he'd then sexually assault them. That's awful, but I, I have to say I'm very proud of you for the way you're pronouncing these, Thank you. these words. I can't tell you how long I spent I'm sure you did. practicing, so I appreciate the shout. At the time that Lamb was doing this, capturing women at knife point and pulling them into a public bathroom to sexually assault them. He was arrested and he was deemed by a psychiatrist at the time to be mentally unfit to stand trial. What about mentally unfit to be in society? Well, he was sanctioned at Castle Peak Psychiatric Hospital for treatment. While reports indicated that he had an unusual obsession with women, he was released from the facility after 102 days and returned back to his family's home. And it's a shame that he was released perhaps prematurely or even at all, because from 1974 to 1980, Lam Corwan's sexual urges intensified to a lethal level as his behavior reached a chilling crescendo. I don't know. How can you be that horny? It's not. I know. It, I'm oh, kidding. oh. <laughs> it's like, how do I Jessica, say this? <laughs> Jessica and I watched this show, I think it was called Obsession, about a guy who is, did you see it? You're talking about the one of the father who slept with his sons. She follows us on Instagram. I know. (gasps) Charlie Murphy. Yes. Yeah. She follows Psychopedia Pod? She does. What's up, Charlie? 
well, maybe she'll agree with this because. So, did you watch it or not? Of course. The scene where he is in the hotel and he's having sex with the pillow that smells like her. <laughs> we were laughing so hard. <laughs> I was like, this guy's too horny for his own good. Like, he's yeah. gonna, he's obviously like, what is up with this guy? He's a 40, 50 year old man. Listen, if you're a 12, 13 year old boy humping a pillow, cool, man. Figure it out and get to know that that's not it. But if you're a 50-year-old man humping a pillow in a hotel room because it smells like you're fucking the woman you're having an affair with, get a grip, bro. <laughs> I don't even remember feeling one way or the other during that scene. Oh, it was hilarious. It was like, dude, this guy's just, he needs to go to horny jail. Bonk, go to horny jail. Horny jail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's a little gross. That's a little, like, hypersexual. That's a little whatever. I don't even know if I can say it's gross. I don't think it's that weird. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, it is. Just so you know. Okay. I'm yeah. sorry. I don't think it is. It was like a substitute for her. He was using his imagination. It's like masturbating. It's your hand. I mean, this is a pillow. Same. No. I'm sorry. It's not that bad. I mean, I disagree. I'd like to hear from our <laughs> fucking followers. I don't know if this is right going to make it in matter. the final cut. Better. I need to know. Guys, how is that different, humping a pillow, than masturbating? And neither is shameful in my book. In literally every way. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Yeah, we're not going to get there. All right. So it was during this time, so following his release from the psychiatric facility, mm-hmm. when Lam Corwen went on to officially become the rainy night butcher, savagely murdering a total of four innocent young women. Mm-hmm. On February 3rd, 1982, which was roughly six months before his incriminating photos surfaced at the Kodak shop, Lam Corwin slowly drove his taxi along Kimberly Road in Simshatsui, a vibrant entertainment hub pulsating with party people and nighttime employees needing rides. There, amidst the clamor of clubs and the bustling nightlife, Lam prowled the streets, patiently awaiting the emergence of a single woman in need of a lift home. Concealed within his glove compartment lie a sinister tool that he was fully intent on using, a steel cable. I mean, he's a literal predator. Yes, that's exactly. I picture his eyes like deep obsidian wells, you know? like I don't, but that's... (laughs) (laughs) And sure enough, tragically, at 4 a.m., a 22-year-old woman named Cheng Feng Lan emerged from a club after completing her shift as a dancer. According to Cheng's sister, who had met Cheng after work, but before she got into Lam's taxi, Cheng consumed a considerable amount of alcohol that night and was noticeably intoxicated when she entered the cab, which is, by the way, precisely when one would call a cab. Yeah. So no judgment, exactly. No. A few cabs actually refused to even pick her up, given how intoxicated she was. But of course, she would have presented as the perfect occupant for Lam Korwan, given his nefarious plan for the evening. So, Cheng got into Lam's taxi. She kept directing and then redirecting Lam to drive around in various directions, and at one point, even threw up. And this absolutely enraged Lam. Oh, really? Causing him to pull over, climb into the back seat, and strangle Cheng with the cord, killing her. I mean, you. I know you didn't mean it, but you said causing, like that guy was gonna. Oh no! no yeah, no. no. I, I. I mean, that's. I thought you were gonna say that she threw up, and he was like, "Oh yeah, she's fucking hammered. She's the one." No. So there are some sources I read that said that 
he may not have even realized or known what he was going to do that night. Uh He didn't necessarily set out to murder. I disagree with this. I could be wrong, obviously. This is my opinion. But the sources that support that theory indicate that he was not planning on killing her. He didn't know what he wanted to do. And when she vomited in the car and was giving him all kinds of fucked up directions, it just flipped a switch and he got consumed with anger and he was like, well, fuck it. That's it. Reached in, grabbed the cord and... Well, you know what I just realized? What's that? We've talked a lot about correlation and and cause and, you know, whether or not fucking watching, I I don't know, whatever. I don't even want to give any examples, but I just pictured a spark, right? If a spark is made onto the ground, concrete, right? It's not going to cause a fire. If you throw a spark into a pile of wood soaked in gasoline, Mm. obviously there's going to be a fire. Mm -hmm. That guy was just like a soaking pile of gasoline waiting to... What you just explained, I believe, is more modern way of the age-old argument or discussion regarding nature and nurture. How typically, it's not nature or nurture. I think the general understanding is it's the combination. It's it's both because nurture would be the spark. Nature would be being literally made of gasoline. That's exactly what I'm saying. So We just fucking, we just cracked wide open the discussion on nature versus nurture. We figured it out. I. You. I. You. (laughs) I'm. I'm bowing down to him, guys. You can't see it, but I'm not worthy to even be in his presence right now. Yeah, I feel that too. Lam then placed Cheng's body into a rice bag that he had in the trunk of the cab and at 5 a.m. proceeded to carry her body into his apartment and store it beneath the sofa until his brother and father left for work at sunrise. He fucking stored a body under the sofa in his 500-square-foot apartment? Yes. That's crazy. That's ballsy. It is. It's chutzpah. During that time, Lam left the apartment to purchase a chainsaw, taping Cheng's eyes shut so that she couldn't look at him. Those were his words that he provided during police interrogation. She was dead, though. She was, but he taped her eyes shut. I guess perhaps they opened or he was worried they would open. Yeah. And then he proceeded to photograph the entire awful process. Lam Korwan sawed off Cheng's breasts and vagina and placed the parts into sawed Tupperware. Off her vagina? And placed the parts Aye. into Tupperware containers filled with a rice wine called Beiju. Ugh. Then he cut the rest of her body into seven pieces before stuffing her remains into plastic bags and discarding them along the Xing Moon River. Her body was discovered soon after, but had not been immediately linked to Lam Korwan, which enabled him to keep going. Mm, horrible. Really. Drawing from the grim lessons learned from the discovery of Cheng's body, because he saw in the news that the body was discovered, he honed his deadly tactics in his next murder, which took place just under four months later, after he targeted an innocent 31-year-old woman named Chan Wenkit. And that break he took between the first victim and the second victim is referred to as a cooling off period or a cooling down period and is classic serial killer behavior. Really? Yeah. In fact, it's required by definition because this pause or break between killings is necessary to distinguish between a mass murder, which is a one-time multi-victim event, and a serial murder, which occurs over multiple incidents with at least three victims. Lam used this cooling off period to perfect his macabre craft. Because leading up to his second murder, Lam studied various medical textbooks relating to human anatomy so that he could learn how to better dissect, dismember, 
and subsequently conceal a corpse. He ditched the loud and clumsy chainsaw and invested in a full set of surgical equipment while thoroughly documenting and photographing both his preparation for and execution of future murderous endeavors. Mm, cool. So while he I'm was having a tough time, while he days. was learning everything and studying and getting his equipment, he videotaped himself doing that. Yeah, it's fucking bizarre. Yeah. According to Senior Inspector Richmond, who I referenced earlier in the case, Martin Richmond, Lamb kept receipts, rookie mistake, from his purchases (laughs) and photographed himself setting the stage and preparing for his kills, which I just mentioned. I mean, obviously he's an idiot. Well, you can see in the video footage the progression of Lamb's confidence and precision as time went on. Yeah. He was truly, sadly scarily getting more and more refined with each video he made. In one video, he even slowly turned his face toward the camera and smiled. It was on May 29th, 1982 at 5.20 a.m. when, sadly, Lam Corwan felt ready to strike again. This is the day on which he picked up 31-year-old Chan Wan Kit after she completed her night shift as a cashier at 7-Eleven. By the way, some sources say that she was a bank cashier. Mm-hmm. Most sources say she was a cashier at 7-Eleven. For me, given the timing, it makes sense if she was finishing a shift, it would have been 7-Eleven versus a bank. So I'm going with 7-Eleven. Yeah, why? What time was she picked up? 5.20 a.m. I mean, yeah, obviously, there's no night shift at the bank. Not that I know about. Using the same length of steel cable wire that he used to take the life of his first victim, Cheng Feng Lan, Lam Corwen strangled Chan Wan Kit, killing her in the back seat of his cab. Then he stuffed her body into a rice sack, transported her back to his apartment, cut out her genitals to keep as trophies, and dissected and dismembered her body with his fancy new surgical equipment. Filming the entire atrocious event, Lam Corwan went on to label this particular videotape Serious Secrets. <laughs> That's what he wrote on the VHS. And now he's like, he, like it's his own little personal porn. And like nobody's going to touch it because it's, there are secrets on there. Yeah, you can't even look at it. Right. It's against the rules. Once he completed desecrating Chan Wan Kit's remains, Lam dumped poor Chan's remains in a thickly wooded and deserted area on Tai Hang Road. His third victim, 29-year-old Lang Sawan, found herself caught in the grips of her personal tragedy on the rainy night of June 17, 1982. Having just completed working an overnight shift as a cleaner, Lang sought refuge from the torrential downpour by hailing a cab. Anxious to escape the deluge, she eagerly entered the back of Lam's taxi. Sadly, Lang's fate took a dark turn when her cab driver, Lab Corwan, drove the car into a secluded alleyway, jumped into the back seat, and strangled the life out of her. The grim aftermath that followed mirrored the gruesome pattern seen with Cheng Fen Lan and Chang Wen Kit, dismemberment executed with surgical precision, the removal and preservation of her sexual organs, and her discarded remains concealed within a densely wooded area along Tai Hang Road. And this is the third woman he killed? Yeah. Okay. However, Lang's ordeal bore two harrowing distinctions from the first two women. Firstly, Lam Corwan attempted to sexually assault Lang prior to strangling her, a battle that she fought valiantly and won. Oh, wow. Yeah. I feel so happy for that 
small triumph yeah. or large triumph, really, yeah. that at least before her death, she successfully fought for that yeah. and won. Secondly, an even more disturbing escalation manifested after Lam murdered and transported Lang's body back to his home because Lam proceeded to cut open Lang's abdomen, pull out her intestine, and cut a slice of it off before chucking it into his mouth to eat. Fuck, that's horrific. Unable to chew through the raw, okay. sinewy internal organ. It's too much. Lamb spit the intestine out and recoiled in disgust. Good, bro. You're fucking disgusting. At its toughness. He wasn't disgusted by that cannibalism. Was... He was disgusted that, you know, it wasn't like to his liking. Of course, all of these grotesque activities were vividly captured on film. And this particular videotape was titled Operation Rainy Night. He filmed himself eating her intestines? He filmed everything, Tank. Ay, ay, ay. Everything from start to finish to all the time in between. Lam Corwan's fourth and final victim was 17-year-old Lang Waisum who was a fifth-form student at Sir Francis Conassian College, Wen Chai. And her murder would prove to unfold a bit differently from the previous three. On July 3rd, 1982, at around 11 p.m., Lang left the Sheraton Hotel in Simsai Su after attending a teacher appreciation dinner. While she only lived one mile away from the hotel in Valley Road Village, her mother had given her money that night for a cab to ensure that she'd get home safely, which absolutely breaks my heart. Yeah. Because, of course, we know that she never made it home that night. After picking Lang up in his taxi outside of the hotel, Lam Corwan pulled the cab into a wooded area and proceeded to handcuff the terrified 17-year-old girl as she pleaded for him to let her go. She offered him money, her body, anything if he just let her live. Lam Corwan drove around for hours with the terrified girl handcuffed in the back of the taxi, later indicating that he actually felt a bit of hesitancy in killing her. But then, in a quote rush, as Lam described it, he knew that he had to kill her in order to preserve his own freedom and to prevent her from ever being able to go to the police. And so... Lam Corwan followed the same pattern as he had with his previous victims, and 17-year-old Lang Waisom suffered a brutal and agonizing death by strangulation. Then, Lam did something that he had not done yet, mm. which was to engage in necrophilia with her corpse. Ooh, it's progressing. It is. There is a severe escalation. Yeah. Following the heinous and tragic murder of his fourth and youngest victim, Lam Corwan decided to drop off some of his film to get developed and decided on that occasion to enlarge one of his photos, which brings us to the top of the episode when Lam Corwan was flagged to the police by the manager of the Mancock Kodak shop. Three days later, so we're in real time now with this case, okay? Okay. Following Lam's interrogation and confession, the Hong Kong police placed a top priority on the recovery of all the victims' remains. This was essential to enable the grieving families to conduct proper and dignified burials, as well as to allow the prosecution to fully examine and ultimately use during trial, which began on March 3, 1983, and took place at the former French Mission Building, which housed the Supreme Court. 
pop quiz. Okay. Which of the following statements is true? A, the jury was intentionally all male. B, the judge recused himself because he didn't think he could remain impartial. C, a member of the audience in the spectator area attempted to jump the partition to attack Lamb. Wow. Um, A? Yes. Wow. The court deemed the evidence to have been too gory and too distressing for a woman to have to view. Well, it's 1983. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so women are not seen equal to men in that time, in that area of the world. Clearly not. No. And they also, by the way, there was a female forensic technician who was at the apartment, who is the one, I think, who initially discovered the genitalia in a container. Yeah. And they took her, the police department took her off the case. Why? Because they felt like it would be too much for her as a female to handle. So they actually removed her from the case. Interesting. So this is a theme we're seeing here. Yeah. Anyway, this is what the evidence contained. 696 color film negatives, <laughs> 1,500 color slides, 1,900 labeled photographs, and three videotapes showing the grisly dissections of the victims, as well as one video showing the absolutely horrendous chainsawing of a body. Ay, ay, That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot of pictures to take for, uh... Remember, he was taking pictures of himself and videoing himself in between the killings. Represented by a defense attorney called Gilbert Rodway, Lamb pleaded not guilty to murder, okay, but rather bro. guilty to manslaughter as a result of insanity, which would be hilarious if it wasn't so fucking ludicrous and tragic. Yeah. He claimed to have been a prophet who killed following God's instruction to do so and claimed to have murdered solely on rainy nights as the water brought with it an unquenchable thirst to kill. Well, what is he, like Taxi Driver? Fucking, did he watch Taxi Driver? No, but there has been a movie made about this case called Dr. Lamb. I'm talking about Taxi Driver with Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro, yeah, no. One day the rain is going to come and wash all the scum off the streets. Interesting. Yeah. That's also, by the way, how he gave himself the moniker, the Rainy Night Butcher. Gave himself a nickname? Yep. And then because this was the first serial killer in Hong Kong, the media just lapped it up. Yeah, they probably didn't know how to come up with a nickname. No. His attorney argued that Lamb killed because he was delusional, had no moral compass, and therefore lacked free will. Which raised the real question here, right? Was Lamb Corwan mad or bad? Five psychiatrists were retained, some from Hong Kong and others from overseas, to individually assess the defendant here. Now, the full report has never been released to the public, but this is the gist, as explained by a man named Dr. Paul Tam, who's a clinical psychiatrist that provided an extensive interview on TV about the report in the 2010s. Essentially, two of the five psychiatrists backed up Lamb's plea of insanity indicating that he suffered from acute psychotic disorder and a schizoid personality. This meant that he would not have been in full control of his faculties at the time in which he carried out his crimes. Yeah. He was also deemed a sexual deviant and a psychopath. They also discussed other mitigating factors as well, such as his volatile upbringing, a potential traumatic brain injury caused by an incident that his mother recounted, during which Lamb's father slapped him so hard when he was two years old that his head ricocheted off the wall. Oh, my God. And sexual oppression and suppression, like when sex workers would laugh at his impotence or when his mother yelled and shamed him for masturbating to his sister. Well, also, you're talking to your whole family about your fucking porn interest, dude. Like At the dinner table. Yeah. 
The prosecution, of course, countered the insanity defense by arguing that Lamb meticulously planned the murders, stuck to the plans, and was of sound mind during each and every deplorable act he committed. This was not something over which he had no control. So while he may have been crazy, he was not legally insane. And what is the point of, I I mean, I used to think that if you were found not guilty by reason of insanity, that you wouldn't have to go away. Like, you're still going away. You are. You're just not going to run the risk of the death penalty, which was on the table here. Oh, okay. The prosecution also poked holes in Lamb's five interviews with the five psychiatrists, indicating that he had several inconsistencies in his responses as well as in his reactions. Yeah. In many ways, it was evident that Lamb had been the one interviewing them, finding out their unique positions on certain questions, and then tailoring his responses accordingly. And we saw this, right, with Rock Terrio in one of our Patreon cases. He was leader of the Ant Hill Kids cult. And again, we covered this case on Patreon with Grace O'Malley. Rock Terrio, according to the prosecution in his case, manipulated the psychologist interviewing him, carefully assessing what he believed that person needed to hear in order to generate a report in his favor that would enable him to avoid the harsher penalty. Yeah. And here in this case, in 1983, Hong Kong had not yet abolished the death penalty. Mm. So it was a tactic. Yeah. Following a three-week trial, the court accepted that Lam Kor Wen had a personality disorder but rejected his claims of insanity. And a personality disorder does not absolve you of criminal activity or remove free will. No. Following about four hours of jury deliberation, Lam Korwan was found guilty on all counts of murder and sentenced to death. Mm-hmm. However, in 1993, the death penalty was fully abolished. So on August 29th, 1984... Lam Korwan's death sentence was formally commuted to life in prison. He didn't get grandfathered in for death? Nope. I was joking. Oh. I mean, it's actually a reasonable question. Following the verdict, this is heartbreaking. The father of Cheng Fen Lan, who was Lam's first victim, Mm. addressed the media and said the following. The verdict was very fair. I will tell my daughter about it at her grave. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what were the precise issues and psychological traits that defined him, ultimately earning him the repugnant distinction of being Hong Kong's first known serial killer? And this is an avenue of discussion that I find fascinating. Riveting. But before we explore that, since I just mentioned that Lam Korwan was Hong Kong's first known serial killer, I'd like to present you with a pop quiz. Okay. How many confirmed serial killers have there been in Hong Kong? A, 2, B, 11, C, 19. Um, A. Yes. Low? Very low, right? Very, very low. Two, you said? Yeah. There was a clear and classic psychopathic escalation in Lam Karwan's behavior, evolving from an obsession with pornography and voyeurism to physically assaulting women in public, followed by abductions, strangulation, murder, dismemberment, and eventually culminating in acts of cannibalism and necrophilia. Ted Bundy would tell you that's the way it's going to go, always. Yeah? That was his thing. Well, he said almost all, I don't know, remember if it was all or not, but I've said this before. He interviewed fellow serial killers in prison, which is a weird thing to say, fellow serial killers, but anyway. And he said that all of them had roots that trace back to porn. All? All, yeah. 
but not just run of your mill average porn consumption. We're yeah, talking yeah, yeah. right an obsession and a fixation. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Well, and also I think the reason why there becomes an obsession or a fixation on pornography is because it doesn't do it for them after, yeah. you know, the first few times. So they have to level it up. They have to do more. They have to do it longer. They have to do it harder, like more violent and graphic. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then when that's not working, that's when they take it to the streets yeah. and they make it real. And then when the kill itself isn't doing it, that's when they do, you know, engage in necrophilia. And when the necrophilia is not doing it, that's when they you, engage in cannibalism. You know, it's you like... You would think that, like, killing someone is the height of their addiction or whatever, but it's like, no, there's always another level, always another level. To well, it. I think it's the height in that moment until it's not. Do you know what I mean? Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I'm like saying on a scale, not in the moment. I'm saying yeah. like, they can always figure out another way to give themselves a little adrenaline rush. Or to try. Yeah. Right. Oh my God. I don't even know if it ever fits the bill. I'm sure it doesn't. Criminal psychopaths may escalate their behavior for several complex reasons, including, but not limited to, and we just touched upon this, they have diminished arousal. Mm -hmm. They can be impulsive, not always, but typically are. They possess thrill-seeking tendencies. They are instrumentally violent, which Go means- skydiving, bro. I mean, right? <laughs> Go whitewater rafting, dude. Yeah. Eat a bran muffin, drink some coffee, and sit in traffic. Yeah, interesting. That's from So I Married an Ex-Murderer. <laughs> <laughs> so they're instrumentally violent, meaning they carry out crimes as a means to achieve a specific goal or objective. And these types of murderers are often referred to as product killers, which I've talked about before. So they don't kill for the pleasure of killing in and of itself, but rather for what they can do with the body after, mm. which obviously is exactly what we have going on here with Lam Corwan. Yep. Going back to criminal psychopaths and why they may escalate their behavior. They are desensitized, which makes it easier to commit and escalate criminal behavior. Mm -hmm. And they tend to have a diminished fear response. Lam Corwan remains locked up in Sheck Pick prison to this day. So fear, obviously fear of like what the interaction is going to be like, but they're not even scared that they're going to feel bad afterwards. Oh yeah. And they're not afraid of the next, exactly. They're not afraid of the next step. It's really all about just satiating oh my God. that or scratching that itch. That's interesting. Lam Corwan's father actually funded memorials for all four victims and attempted to provide financial support to their families. That's nice. I'm struggling here because I do think that he likely played a part in, I'm not going to say he caused his son to become a serial killer because I don't think you can ever, ever pick one thing and hang your hat on it and say that one thing is the reason why this person became a serial killer. I think it's a combination of many things, but I absolutely think that he nurtured yeah, all of the wrong things in his son that boiled over and really contributed towards this destructive path. Yeah, but you also have to consider the fact that he was younger when he was younger, less accustomed to being a parent, obviously like a problem as a dad, but as people get older... They change and they see things differently and they probably, he probably has regrets about how he treated them and mm -hmm. feels partially responsible. Right. So him trying to make an amends to these families is nice. I'm it's, not a saying, it's a solid move. I'm not saying he's a great guy. Yeah. I can't say it's nice. I don't know why. There's something that's making me struggle with that, but I do okay. think it was a stand-up thing to do and the right thing. Yeah. But I'd like to leave off this case by highlighting and honoring each of the four victims and sharing whatever information I could find on who they were as people and not just victims of Hong Kong's first serial killer. 
Chang Feng Lan was 22 years old and worked as a dancer at the Chinese Palace nightclub. She had great friends, a sister, and a father who all loved her. Chan Wen Kit was 31 years old and worked as a trade cashier either at 7-Eleven or the St. Augustine Bank. Again, I believe it was likely at 7-Eleven. I think anybody working an overnight shift is, is a hustler. Whenever you say cashier, I keep hearing cashy first. Oh. And then there's like an R at the end of it. it. It very likely is how I'm saying it now <laughs> in life that I have my own cashy. He's a cashier. Lang Sawon was 29 years old and worked as a cleaner until the very early hours of the morning. She fought for her life tooth and nail and did not go silently into the night. It was her body that was featured in the photographs developed at the Kodak store, which ultimately brought her killer down. Really? Yes. She She, was the one who had the burn mark on her thigh. So she beat him twice. Yeah, she sure did. Lang Wai Soon, age 17, was pursuing higher education and had a mother who loved her and attempted to keep her safe by giving her cab fare, which again, absolutely crushes me. My mother used to do the same thing for me. She was smart and brave and attempted to appeal to Lamb's human side during her abduction, which kept her alive hours longer than her predecessors. Really? Yes. She talked about her family, education, religion, spirituality. He felt hesitant about killing her. Correct. Yeah. Her family desperately attempted to find her after she'd gone missing. Calling other students who attended that same banquet that she had on the night of her disappearance Mm -hmm. while also filing a report with the police. Photos were shared with the public as her family continued to search for their missing daughter until her desecrated remains were discovered two months later. And as I mentioned, at some point in this case, there is a movie that was made about this case. Lam Korwan is portrayed by Hong Kong actor Simon Yam, Mm -hmm. who apparently was a popular actor. It was made in 1992 and it's called Dr. Lam, but it's spelled L-A-M-B for some reason. (laughs) But yeah, but that's the case. Yeah, wow, that one was horrible. I know. Yeah, that was really bad. Yeah, that, that wasn't good for you. I'm sorry. No, it reminds me of that other case that I had, like, a, just sitting through it was like, oh, the treehouse murderer? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, do you, I mean, I wonder if people like these cases that are, like, super well, gruesome. you know, True crime appeals to different people for different reasons, which we have definitely talked about before. Yeah. Some people like the act of justice at the end. Some people like to learn from it, right? They like to confront their fears and think that they're like taking something away from it to prevent themselves from getting in that situation. My point in bringing this up, and then there's May Wright who likes the psychology of it and yeah. like the dark corners of like the human mind. But that's why I like to pick a variety of different types of cases because I think there's never one person who's going to, you know, like everybody likes it for different reasons. So I want to give you all different types of cases and appeal to to everyone's interests. Yeah. Well, this is not my kind of case, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. It it's was... not that I didn't like it. It's just that it's... I, but I could also see people getting addicted to that feeling that I was feeling. You were on a roller coaster. No, I was like, my stomach hurt, and then I was like picturing things too much, like too graphically. Yeah. Um, and I didn't like that at all. Yeah, so. I understand. That's okay to feel that way. I have a different response. I don't enjoy it by any means. I'm like choking down tears a lot of times when I'm doing research. I can't even believe what I'm typing and what I'm reading. Yeah. So it definitely hits me. Yeah. But I am fascinated to understand how, how somebody is brought to that level Mm -hmm. and how they get away with it and then how they're caught. And then obviously we just want to shed light on the people who were victimized. So 
That's what I take away from it. I like that you said they were people and not just the victims of the first serial killer. Yeah, it's so important to remind people of that in the true crime community in general. These are human beings, like real people. Uh And they had interests and favorite foods and favorite movies and, you know, friends and pets. And right now, they're only sort of known by the worst day of their life. Yeah. And I don't like that. Yeah. All right, well, all things considered... I think that was a good case. Good. Thank you, sir. Not for me, but for true crime (laughs) fans. You did a good job hanging in there. I'd be interested to hear from people whether or not they enjoy this type of case. And if this is what you want, I'll just get tougher. I think you need to get tougher. And also, guys, I'll shake it up. So if this wasn't for you, I'll give you something else. All good. Yes, all good. Well, if you made it this far, Meg, you're a real fan. We appreciate you. can hear that outro music coming right there it is saving tank so we will see you guys next episode thanks for listening Bye. bye